This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Konstantinos Karagiannis. He's the Director of Quantum Computing Services at Protivity. Konstantinos has been involved in the quantum computing industry since 2012, and he's been involved in information security since the 90s. He's a frequent speaker at RSA, Black Hat, and DEF CON, as well as at dozens of conferences worldwide. In fact, he recently presented at DEF CON at the Quantum Village, where he talked about quantum-inspired tensor networks. He also hosts his own terrific podcast called The Post-Quantum World. His company, Protivity, is a global consulting firm that delivers deep expertise and unparalleled collaboration to help leaders confidently face the future. At Protivity, Constantinos and his team help companies get ready for quantum opportunities and threats. Their clients include more than 80% of the Fortune 100 and nearly 80% of Fortune 500 companies. They also work with government agencies, as well as with smaller, growing companies, including those looking to go public. Protivity has a network of more than 85 offices in over 25 countries. So welcome, Konstantinos, and thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's always fun to be uh, a guest instead of the host every once in a while, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, for sure. So I'm excited, I have to say, to learn more about your work helping companies and organizations explore both the benefits and the challenges of quantum solutions. But I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. And my objective really is twofold, to give our audience a sense of what you did before you joined Protivity, of course, but also to orient listeners to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So could you please share with our listeners a bit about your background and your path so far, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school and what you studied, and maybe insight into companies or organizations where you worked before Protivity? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I ask something similar to people because <laughs> it's amazing, right? All the different ways we ended up here. It is amazing. Um, totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so I have been involved in quantum for quite a while, um, and, and we'll get to that. But uh, way back when, I, I went to Polytechnic University in Brooklyn, um, and I studied physics there. And I, I, I don't want to date myself or age myself here, but um, yeah, Polytechnic doesn't exist anymore. So <laughs> it was, it was great quite a while school, ago. a legendary school for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't exist. It was a really cool place to go. Then I, I was, I was always fascinated by it, though. Even even when I was younger, um, I was one of those folks who came across uh, concepts of quantum. In, in just the right book at just the right time. And uh, even so way back then. What book was that? I got to press you now. You just, oh, you know what? I, uh, I wish I remembered. Like uh, a Feynman book or something? Or Yeah. And, and I think it was. And yeah. um, and then some of it was like too complicated for me. But <laughs> what, what it got me thinking along the lines of early was, I think everyone needs to be exposed to quantum physics immediately if in physics, right? Like the, the physics approach has always been, let's start with, you know, balls rolling down planes <laughs> right. and things. It's like, uh, right. Right. simple machines. <laughs> yeah. Simple machines. And, you know, I get it. I get that. But, but the chances of exciting very many people in there who aren't planning on building a Rube Goldberg device or something tomorrow, it, it's probably not that, um, likely. So I feel like everyone should start with that little magic first. And, and, and to me it was, it was, it was the double slit experiment. It was all that. And, I was just blown away. 
back then many worlds wasn't very popular yet it, it was it was it existed but it's grown in popularity now and as I started to learn about all that kind of stuff and and the measurement problem and all that, I was just so hooked. And so I, I studied it, but I didn't really see any practical way to do anything with it at the time. Um, so I kind of put like per, the classical pursuit of non-classical physics on hold, I guess, after a while. And I got into... Um, into hacking. <laughs> and uh, I was going to like Radio Shack uh, 2600 meetings. Wow. Uh, it was, I think it was like the first Thursday of every month or something like that. I would go to the mall and go to the Radio Shack and go to those meetings. And yeah, so I, I, I didn't break any rules, I guess. Maybe not. Depends on your count. But uh, th those were fun days. Um, you know, you, you just learn your chops. And it was about like understanding how computers work, of course, and, and getting them to do things. And physics was still in my head as like understanding how the universe works. And, and I just knew that one day those, those things would like coalesce really well. Um, and when I first learned about the concept of Deutsch's view of quantum computing, I was super, super hooked. Um, of course, uh, Feynman came up with the idea as a universal simulator, this whole idea that if the universe is quantum, you'd have to build a machine that's quantum to simulate it, right? But, but it was Deutsch who, who put it together in this, in this way that you have a machine that can remember visiting the many worlds sort of and coming back and reporting an answer just to really butcher the um the whole concept and make it something very simple that i could say in a soundbite here so that that really really excited me and i knew one day these machines would be incredible and um also, of course because of peter shore's work we knew that these machines would also be a threat so that always kind of like stayed with me even when i was doing things like hacking banks uh, of course with their permission for for the companies i worked for and things like that I just always knew that one day that that level of infosec threat would be real and uh, information security shortened to infosec. Um, and I kind of pursued those parallel tracks for a while, uh, spent many years doing hacking. Um, and when you do primarily financial hacking, you find that they're, they're always interested in bleeding edge technology. And, and I bring that up because of course it's going to color the rest of our talk today. Yeah. Um, they're always interested in the bleeding edge technologies and, and, you know, I got exposed to things like blockchain early and, did the first talk at DEF CON on hacking that. Um, I just wanted to really understand how things worked, those concepts and levels, and, and, I, and I attacked them that way. And then slowly but surely, people started talking about quantum. It, around 2012, I gave my first talk on the quantum threat to, to financial organizations. So I've been in this for about 11 years. Yeah, and I started, uh, my company at the time, BT, um, was doing a lot with quantum key distribution. Um, they didn't manufacture the machines, though. That was like Toshiba and 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 such. But um, so I, I had exposure to everything, you know, the, the concepts like securing QKD and what that looks like for for our financial customers. Um, QKD in its early days, you know, it's like anything else, right? You can have a great password, put it on a Post-it note. It's not such a great password anymore. Uh, so there was all those kinds of considerations. And uh, eventually, uh, my role at BT was um, CTO of Emerging Threats. And quantum remained like a regular rotation thing. So I was involved in quantum regularly for you know a good ten years or so. And uh, eventually, I came to Protivity, and they were building their own emerging technology group. Uh, so I was able to create my own little baby, my own little practice. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so around quantum computing uh, that that we'll get to, I'm sure. So fast. So you've been doing this a long time. That's pretty remarkable. I mean, I I spoke to a lot of people and. You may have, uh, I mean, in terms of like being in the, you know, in the business of quantum, uh, I think you, you're 
tenure takes the cake, if you will. I mean, oh, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, remarkable. It's a ten plus one years of tenure. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it's it's been a while, and at, at that said, it's I've been able to see how it evolved. Right in the early days, it, people only cared about the threat. That was it, and it tied in with the other stuff I was doing, the hacking, the emerging threats. Yeah. So people just wanted to hear, "Oh my God, we're in trouble one day with cryptography." But then eventually, when the machine started appearing on the cloud, you know, the, the first five qubit machines from IBM, um, we started saying, wait a minute, look at these papers being published. Uh, look at these other algorithms and use cases. And then people wanted to start experimenting with that. So I got into the more use case side. But until IBM did that, it was, yeah, it was just gloom and doom, threat, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all your encryption is as good as done. And, and that's what it was. Well, I wanted to get some background on Protivity a little bit, but but sort of more importantly, how you began a quantum practice area at a management consulting firm. I think people would be fascinated to hear your perspective on how that came about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so Protivity, uh, once upon a time, we'll, we'll keep it in storytelling mode. Once okay. upon a time, the term <laughs> big four was big five. Um, a lot of people don't remember that. And a lot of people of a certain age probably don't even know that's a real thing. But yeah, once upon a time, it was the big five of accounting firms. And one of them was Arthur Anderson. And uh, in 2002, uh, when that collapsed, some employees from that uh, who were involved in things like technology and internal audit, they, they got together and created Protivity. Um, and that was uh, that became eventually a subsidiary of Robert Half. It didn't really take that long, if I remember correctly. And um, now it's grown to be this huge consulting firm of its own. I mean, I wouldn't say it's made the world big five again, but I like to think of it as a smaller big five, uh, a big four, you know? So it, it's kind of like the same as those other consulting firms, uh, a little more focused in some ways. And uh, I think the quality is... Uh, the same or higher in my opinion, but I'm, you know, I'm biased, <laughs> yeah. uh, but we have some really amazing people and we do some really amazing things and it's constantly being voted like one of the best places to work and, and all those kinds of awards. And, uh, you just see it. It's, it's a great place to be. Yeah, really. that's great. So I wanted to ask you, can you do, you know, having set it up that way, can you describe Protivity's solutions for the quantum industry, say to more broadly, like what makes your approach unique as compared to, say, other solutions in the space? Again, given the background, you know, that the you smart people came from Anderson or other firms to put together the Protivity portfolio. Sure. So for a while, I guess before the emerging tech group uh, was formed, um, there were like more discrete practices that have been around for a while. You know, there was like the internal audit, then there was um, technology, um, there was like uh, S&P, security and privacy. And, and they would handle um, like everything, you know, secure privacy would be like helping you with, you name it, audits for security, uh, penetration testing, um, uh, like making sure that you're uh, compliant with certain things, um, you know, PCI, whatever. Uh, so, so all those kinds of things that, that the big consulting firms take care of. Uh, so when emerging tech started, we, we started looking at things like um, IoT, machine learning, and, and like building those practices. So I was involved in coming to the company and then like creating one extra piece of emerging tech, which would be quantum. And I, the way I envisioned it from the beginning is kind of how it still is. Um, I knew that with quantum companies would care about two things. One, using these machines to do amazing things. And two, the threat. And what does it mean to them? Um, so still to this day, that's what the practice is, you know, now four years later. Um, it's still helping companies create use cases. Um, but of course, we don't have quantum advantage yet. So putting these use cases in production is tricky. 
uh, you can maybe use them in like one step of a long process, like one little piece of a supply chain or whatever. Uh, but you can't really consider quantum to be production ready in most cases. So um, instead, you can figure out something now, do the learning now, and be ready as these machines get stronger and extrapolate. Yeah. So we do. I do a lot of extrapolation. It's yeah. like, look where we are with this many qubits. Look at how many we are with this kind of performance level. And extrapolating if we just have another whatever, make up a number, it doesn't matter depending on the thing, but right. another 100 qubits or whatever, right. um, we'll be here. So there's a lot of that going on for now. Cool. But yeah. uh, on that aspect of use cases, it's not the greatest economy right now, right? Let, let, let's face it. <laughs> People talk about like, is it a quantum winter or whatever? Um, I think it's an everything winter in some ways uh, for for like innovation. And a lot of companies are more concerned with, you know, keeping the lights on and production quality things. Yeah. So that's why I also added in this layer of quantum inspired, which is what I talked about at DEF CON. And, and quantum inspired is basically just getting advantage with hardware that's available today using either techniques that we learned from quantum computing or things that came from pure quantum physics like tensor networks. So I layered in that to give customers the opportunity to have something that will give them advantage today. Like yeah. you can run this algorithm today and it'll perform better than classical because it's running on as much hardware as you want to throw at it. You know, go to your AWS account or Microsoft, whatever, yeah. and just select as many of these machines <laughs> as you need to get the numbers you need. Yeah. Um, so it's possible. That's really exciting. Yeah. So I want to ask about use cases to continue sure. on that thread. So I'm wondering if there are specific verticals that you're focused on, um, you know, where are you getting traction and in turn, you know, which ones are reluctant to explore quantum? Who's barking and saying, oh, no, not yet. Or There are three big pillars of use cases, uh, the way I view them, like the, the holy three pillars. Uh, there's, uh, <laughs> yeah. there's optimization, there's machine learning, and there's simulation of some type. Uh, and pretty much every quantum use case fits somewhere underneath one of those. Some of them kind of like straddle between. So when you look at the types of use cases that fall under those, the companies that are most interested in quantum in general tend to be financials. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm seeing more and more sort of like logistics folks getting interested um, as far as our customers go, right? But then we don't really work too much with like material science. Um, you know, it, it'd be kind of strange to go to a, a big consulting firm for that. You know, so we don't technically have those kinds of conversations, um, but there are areas there where it could be used. So in that case, like I could see companies trying to develop new materials would have scientists on staff that are focusing on then also learning how to apply quantum one day to the problem. Uh, but but aside from that kind of like level of simulation for us, it's more like simulating things like Monte Carlo, you know, how something's going to go or doing optimizations in the form of like portfolios doing machine learning to do things like fraud detection. So these are just like some concrete examples. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, it, so it's definitely mostly financials. And then, like I said, some logistics kind of companies. Yeah. Traveling salesman problem comes to mind for optimization, right. of course. You know, I want to also get a sense of, you know, there's a big focus, obviously, on quantum workforce and preparing the next generation. And I thought maybe you could share some insight for our listeners on, you know, who's on your team, like the range of skills that productivity brings to the conversations about quantum with clients. And the idea is, you know, your insight would be valuable to certainly companies that are looking to put together quantum teams, skunk works, or, you know, who to, who to put in charge of the team and what kind of budget they should allocate. And yeah, and like who what kind of skill sets are, you know, it, it's definitely team. tricky. Um, and, yeah. and there's, there's definitely more jobs available than there are people who fill them and quantum in general, even, even with this like current slowdown or whatever you want to call it. 
Um, I still believe that there's like a lot of job openings in quantum. So it's, that's kind of exciting, right? Um, yeah. Unless you're one of those companies trying to accomplish something tomorrow and you don't have the staff. <laughs> yeah. um, it, this is a nascent technology, right? For most industries. And a lot of companies don't really want to hire uh, folks to have them on staff full time for this because they don't have enough uses for them. So they tend to have like a more mixed model where there's folks who are in data science, but also do a little bit of quantum machine learning, do a little bit of quantum, et cetera. Um, we do something kind of similar here. at One of the great things about being in such a big company is that we have teams that are specialized in many different things and we could pull from them to use them. Like we have our pretty large machine learning team, for example. So there are folks in there that I can use to develop things that are more classical, like, like let's say tensor networks or whatever. Um, so, so we have that like large pool to pull from. And if we hire folks, we don't have to hire folks with a, uh, time commit to one type of project either. Like we could get someone who knows, uh, how to use Kiskit, but they're also really, really good at classical machine learning or something. And then they can yeah. be built or cryptography or something else. And then they could be built in different ways. Um, and it's also interesting for them, right. in their career development to be able to do a lot of different things. So that's another great thing about this structure. Uh, those types of folks also come in handy for the stuff we'll talk to eventually about the threat, like um, people who know cryptography in general. So we have like lots of folks like that available to me at any given time. Yeah. Um, we have uh, people at different levels devoted to emerging tech and also to quantum in, in ways like involved with having the conversations with customers, helping them understand what their needs are, all those types of things. Um, I'm the devoted in addition to leading the team, I'm also like the devoted SME, you know, so I don't really touch any other area. Um, I, I just, I live 100% quantum. It, it's either use cases or threat for me 24 seven. That's kind of like the model. It's like layered, if that makes sense. And that's kind of a model I think companies should use too. You yeah. should have like a few core SMEs that are focused and then pull from other teams as needed. It's interesting yeah. that Boeing does something like that. Um, I, I had, had Boeing on my podcast and uh, we got to talk about their approach. They, they end up having a lot of folks working on quantum at any given time inside, but they come from different teams with different specialties, whether it's like making materials for wings that'll flex better or working on their quantum navigation system. It's, it's a great model. And, and I, I like it. <laughs> but we also, that said, sometimes I need big strength in numbers. So we have partners available too. Like eventually we'll talk about some sure, but, uh, like I work with um, Multiverse on, on one project recently. Um, we work with Inflection, um, IonQ. We have like folks who are available to fill in the gaps too. Like let's say I know I need 10 people, boom, I can get them quickly. Um, or just about, I think this is also a time period where we don't want to like close the doors to innovation. So if a company has a really good paper out there that I love and I think it would help one of my customers, I will actually bring people, scientists involved in that paper to come and help on a project. You know, that way I make sure our customers get the very best. Yeah. And it's not like a pride thing or a, or a you know, like, hey, I, I'm going to give you only what I could do myself, you know? Right, <laughs> right. Like, yeah, yeah. If I feel that partnering gives the best result, I'll partner for sure. Yeah. Well, that's great advice I and mean, great guidance for sure. I'm pulling, certainly you have the advantage of being a large organization, but still the model, you know, a couple of dedicated SMEs and then pull people with skills in other parts of the business or whatever to help you come up with the solutions. Great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It seems to work yeah. really well so far. So let's talk about the perennial question, clients. Mm -hmm. um, can you give our listeners a sense of, you know, what clients you're working with and the kinds of solutions you're developing? I don't want you to share anything that's confidential or sure. represents um, a risk for the company, but any examples, you even white labeled or anonymized, but just. 
Yeah. So one that I could give a name because whenever a client agrees to publish a paper with us, then I can give the name, right? Obviously there's papers. So, yeah. uh, so Ala Financial is a great example. They came to us, they wanted to do uh, something in quantum portfolio optimization. And the thing with quantum portfolio optimization is the very first uh, benefits or edges we saw in it are speed. Like you would, um, you would be able to throw a lot of data at it and get results faster or something like that. Uh, and there's a lot of variables in there. Uh, that that can change that. Um, so we went in. We were all set to do that, and they were like, and we were like, okay. So how long does your typical uh, portfolio optimization take? And they're like, about uh, like a minute. And it's like, oh, okay. So speed's not going to be what we're looking for here. <laughs> yeah, right. Because <laughs> if you are if you're already doing these like small runs, and, and it's like a minute, then I, I don't think I'm going to wow you if I give you right, fifty yeah. seconds. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, really. Well. Yeah, so that wasn't the approach we wanted to go with. So um, yeah. <laughs> we partnered with Multiverse to uh, come up with a different approach. And what we did instead uh, for our financial index tracking was uh, we used what are known as cardinality constraints. So in general, cardinality constraints are when you, you limit uh, the number of times an entity appears in something. Um, and more specifically here, we limited the numbers of um, assets that were appearing in a particular, you know, custom ETF or whatever. Uh, so we were we were able to then, with Carnalic Estrates, recreate the performance of, let's say, the NASDAQ 100 with only 25 assets. And when we did it with the S&P 500, we were able to get it all the way down to uh, 10%, so 50 assets, um, which is actually better if you think about it, because it's just a larger start. Um, so... If you visualize that, you know, you, you can watch how um, I'm sitting here waving my hands as if your audience can hear me. <laughs> Look at my hands creating oh, yeah. lines in the, oh, in the graph. <laughs> yeah, you see that? Now? So if you visualize the way that the data flows in like a line like that, um, we're able to kind of basically match it with fewer stocks. And that's huge because that lowers your risk um, and your overhead. And, and you can have these like custom smaller uh, ETFs and lower cost all across the board. So that was an interesting experiment. And we were able to do it historically uh, over a year to show uh, that this is something that's sustainable and, and the risk reduction. So we published a paper on that, um, co-author on that. So, so that's out there and anyone could read it and, and, and dig into the details. Um, some other stuff that uh, as far as just use cases, um, which I can't then you know get into people's names and stuff, but, but like, I, like I hinted at earlier, um, this year, there's, there's a huge interest in tensor networks and, and, and quantum inspired. So pushing a lot of that. Um, and we have uh, partnerships in place for some of those types of approaches uh, to, to bring a multiverse again. For example, they have um, a good way to do option pricing with that, that we work with them to customize for customers. And then in general, what's fascinating about tensor networks uh, that you can use it for an area that's exploding right now, uh, generative AI. Um, you can use tensor networks to sort of reduce the numbers of, I'll just keep this really non-technical. If, if you visualize tensors as these giant matrices of numbers, there are techniques you can use to lower the amount of numbers in one of those matrices without really affecting performance. Uh, one of the techniques is called SVD, uh, singular value decomposition. And, and you just basically throw out some values and then recombine matrices and you end up with smaller numbers. And we've seen 40 to 50 X reductions in the number of parameters needed, which can have a great impact in, in speed, performance, accuracy. So I could see this being applied more widely to generative AI and getting like custom 
LLMs or something inside of organizations so that we don't have to worry about your data being sent to anything and, and used um, you know, out there or relying on companies to be telling the truth about whether or not your private documents <laughs> are where they got it. Or... Machine. So, so there are ways to do things like that. Great. So these are just some of, just some examples. So I want to sort of continue the tech conversation, segue into picking your large brain about um, tech solutions. Obviously they vary depending on the business problem you're trying to solve, but I just want to get your take on, you know, any specifics about the kinds of tech you propose to clients, say based on their business needs. I know yeah, it's a general question, but yeah. So for quantum, um, we we don't make quantum computers of productivity, so we're not like limited or hamstrung by that. <laughs> if we made, uh, let's say, I made a transmon quantum computer at productivity, I would tell you that every quantum problem is best solved with transmon, wouldn't I? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, mean, well, I, I believed I, it or not, I'd probably have to tell you that. Well, with all due um, respect, I worked at IBM for 15 years, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So every problem, no no, Transmon. It's Transmon all the way, baby. Woo. Hey, yeah, no. <laughs> it is E-series and you'll be golden. <laughs> exactly. So we don't make them. So as a result, we're free to um, pick the right one for the job. And how do we do that? Uh, we don't do it based on who's our buddy that week. We do it based on actual benchmarking and, and previous papers. So uh, our friends at Inflection, um, they acquired a company uh, called SuperTech, and they make the Supermark benchmark, for example. And that's one way to see what types of business problems certain quantum computers are better at than others. Uh, so that's always like a starting approach, looking at that, and then trying to build um, a use case based on that. And that way, what we bring is custom algorithmic development to customers to solve real business problems with a quantum computer or a quantum-inspired approach. And we are not limited by which hardware. We can pick whatever is best for the job. Yeah. And and that's pretty exciting and, and kind of like freeing. You know, it's it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk in, in more detail about one aspect of your remit, right, which is around addressing threats. Certainly, there's increasing focus on you know, harvest now, decrypt later, the Y2Q mm-hmm. you know, inflection point where quantum computers be able to hack current RSA and ECC encryption protocols. Um, I want to get your take on how Protivity is preparing clients for what could be described as the coming quantum computing apocalypse. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, uh, like I said earlier, that's the other half of my, my practice, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And at some point I hand off some of this to, I talked about that wide pool of talent, like at Protivity, we have a huge pool of people talented in cryptography and like security audit. And at some point it becomes that. But at its core, first we have to go in and I go in and I explain to customers the, the actual threat. And of course, the threat is that when we have a certain number of qubits of high quality, uh, logical qubits, we'll be able to reverse uh, public key cryptography um, and variants of that. So there's various papers you can look at. Um, I, I usually give links to a few. Um, there's one with a formula that seems to be pretty reliable. This idea of 2n plus 2 quality qubits. So if you have uh, RSA 2048, you would double that and add two. So you'd end up with 4096, um, uh, 4098. And that would be the number of high quality qubits you would need to crack RSA, for example. And we have to look at the timeline and wonder how long it is before we get these machines. And there's all sorts of things we can talk about with timeline if you want later. But, but the general approach, um, everyone seems to agree that somewhere in the 2030s, we're probably in trouble. And companies need to start considering Mosca's theorem now. Moscow's theorem states that you take the number of years it'll take your organization to migrate to post-quantum cryptography, 
you add it to the number of years you want to keep a secret secret and you end up with a number. And usually that number is pretty large, which means some secrets are already going to be revealed. It might already be too late for some of them. So the time to start was years ago. Uh, so it's urgent. And the other thing for companies to keep in mind is even if you believe that a quantum computer of power needed to do this is 50 years away, uh, it doesn't matter because in 2024, when NIST publishes its finalists uh, for post-quantum cryptography, the White House has already telegraphed what it's going to do, what it's going to require federal agencies to do. And I promise you, private industry is just going to cut and paste that document. They're not going to rewrite it. They're not going to spend the millions to do the research themselves. So if the NSM 10 memorandum from the White House, as it's known, if that states that within 90 days of the NIST finalists, we have to start creating a timeline for deprecation of current ciphers, that means the quantum apocalypse starts next year, period. If you're involved in cryptography in your organization, bad news for you. Y2Q is next year. <laughs> wow, really? You really could believe that, yeah, right? You could believe quantum computers are fairy dust. And you could believe they're unicorns. They're, they're not real. Doesn't right. matter. If I tell you it's deprecated, it's deprecated. Too bad. Yeah. So yeah. So the reality is, next year this is everybody's problem. Everyone has to start looking towards post quantum uh, migration, and that's why we offer that. We go in and we do what we call a post quantum cryptography crypto agility assessment. Rolls off the tongue, right? I mean, it's, it's like ooh, it's so smooth. Um, and uh, crypto agility just means how flexible your company is to shift to new uh, primitives without destroying everything, right? Like you don't want to introduce a new cryptography uh, element and then all of a sudden you know people can't get their messages or whatever anymore <laughs> so yeah so it's about doing it right so we go in we start with that and then we help companies decide what new elements they need to buy you know key management whatever going forward um yeah. and it's like a multi-step process yeah no that's great insight yeah wow next year 2024 that's so the apocalypse heard it here first <laughs> really, really duly noted everybody <laughs> yeah <laughs> write that down Constantinus, I want to shift gears and talk about workforce for a minute. That's an area of passion for me, having mm -hmm. being a nonlinear, multimodal career guy. Um, I want to get your take on challenges facing a company like Protivity in finding quantum talent. Um, how do you go about recruiting for the company? You guys have affiliations with universities, maybe? Are there internships where you try before you buy kind of settings? or And are there roles in specific disciplines from this pool that you're drawing from uh, that, where you're finding gaps? Yeah. Um, Protivity has one of the most, I don't want to call it turnkey, but it feels that way, like turnkey uh, um, intern program I've ever seen anywhere. It's like every summer, boom, we have this amazing group of interns that come in with really, really wide backgrounds. I, I, I kind of know how they do it, but I, I'm sort of giving them a plug by saying, I don't know how they do it. Like it's, it's amazing, you know? Um, and then that's a really diverse pool and they get assigned to real projects kind of immediately and they learn by doing right away. And then from that pool, we can automatically see who excels in what and, and what they want to pursue. We learn from them too, what their experience was like and what they want to pursue. And then we end up having these great like entry level folks come in after they graduate a year later, you know? Uh, so we have that constant pool of new talent and new blood coming in, which is great. Uh, in the quantum space, it's a little trickier, of course. Uh, that's just like company-wide. But in the quantum space, of course, it's a unique set of skills, right? Quantum means that you've mastered linear algebra. Um, you have experience in quantum physics. You are good at coding, most likely machine learning. Like, it's just a strange combination of things. Uh, if, 
resumes come along with that kind of strange combination of things, then that in turn, of course, will be earmarked as someone potential for the future. Um, we're not always hiring in in like quantum. Uh, you know, some other teams we're always hiring, not not necessarily quantum. It depends what's going on in the year and the time. Uh, but we do also have uh, good relationships with universities. I have a really good relationship with University of Chicago because we're a part of the Chicago Quantum Exchange. And that's just a wonderful synergistic organization. You know, they, they help open doors to everything. Uh, so I get to sort of, I get to have these like sessions with students. Um, I do a few of them a year at University of Maryland, University of Chicago, some other schools. And in these sessions, I kind of explain to the younger students like what um, what a career in quantum looks like as far as coding, for example, being a quantum developer. And I help give them a sense of how they could build their own curriculum, even if that's what they were really interested in. Wow, great. Yeah, and then because this is one thing I wish I would see. Like, I don't see universities having this dedicated curriculum called like quantum coder track. You know, I think it should exist. We have it in computer science that when you get out in four years, you can go be a developer, you know, writing whatever. I think we should have something like that in quantum. It should be very focused. You know, you learn a few quantum development platforms and, and more importantly, the bigger um, concepts of like circuits and how to convert algorithms to them. And you're able to, if that's all you want to do and you don't want to go down the whole path after, you're able to graduate and go and start applying algorithms to, you know, do portfolio optimization or whatever, like you're, you're doing it out the gate. Um, I think that would be terrific. So I'd like to see more of that. But for now, all I could do is like have those conversations with students and kind of like explain to them uh, that it is possible to build your own sort of track. Yeah. Well, I encourage all academics listening to get a hold of Konstantinos and talk about how that might be deployed. I'd like to end the podcast. We're coming to the end. By oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> I want to give you the crystal ball and ask you to wax philosophic for a moment here. Um, and share your vision of where you think quantum-based or quantum-inspired solutions might be in, say, the five to 10-year time frame. And more broadly, what kind of impact do you think it's going to have on how we live and work? Okay, sure. great. Um, so five to 10, wow. Uh, in the five to 10 space, I do believe we're going to have really powerful machines. And I don't just say this because of progress being a thing. <laughs> um, we're working... Uh, as an industry right now towards some incredible stuff like uh, interconnect is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, this idea that qubits don't care what machine they're in, really. Um, you can entangle qubits from here to the Andromeda galaxy, in theory. You know, uh, It could be a 2.3 million uh, light year <laughs> connection between qubits. And in, according to the laws of physics, it would still work. We don't need 2.3 million light years, uh, but what we do need the ability to get a few quantum computers to work together. And that's something that a lot of smart folks are working on. IBM's already publicly admitted that they don't get to that system two design with 16,000 qubits without interconnect. You know, it's like that weird, it's kind of an awesome look too, the honeycomb design with the machines and everything. Yeah. Um, so we know that interconnect's a thing we need. And we don't really know yet how many qubits we need inside of one of these boxes, but I suspect there is a number for each technology, each mode. Uh, so whether it's optical, transmon, whatever, there's a certain number of qubits that if you pass it, you're just not going to gain anything. You're going to introduce noise. You're going to, it's just going to be kind of a mess. So once we figure out what that optimal little box is, we could connect a bunch of those little boxes together and build unlimited power quantum computing. And I, I think that's the path forward, no matter what, what technology you use, interconnects key. And if we get that working, 
uh, I think within five to 10 years, we'll have machines with a thousand quality qubits, which means we'll have machines that have four to 6,000 qubits if you connect them together, which means we'll be cracking encryption. So, so that's kind of how I view that side of it. Yeah. Uh, but as far as how it'll affect the world, once we have even a few hundred logical qubits, uh, that's, you know, error corrected, which could mean there's thousands of them behind the scenes helping to create those logical pure ones. Um, you should be able to do things that classical computers can't even hope to keep up with. It's just, it's just kind of obvious. Once you pass 50 quality qubits, you can't simulate that with any machine on earth, really. Um, you know, simulators start to choke after that amount, because each time you add one qubit, you double the RAM, double the intensity required of uh, the supporting architecture and it's just too much for most machines so once you have a few hundred we're going to be able to do things that we can't even hope to simulate today including with tensor networks because um i won't get into that but tensor networks have a problem with what's called contraction and if you make it too big you can't really contract it in a meaningful way to to get your answer so i see in that time frame we will be having advantage across the board it'll be like every algorithm that you run on one of these machines, you'd be like, whoa, look at that. Why didn't we do it this way all along? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. so, so quantum is just going to be amazing like that. And I, I think we're going to be seeing more algorithms be developed and more techniques. But even if we don't, the ones we have now, just getting them perfect, what a difference it'll make. Uh, running a Monte Carlo simulation in a few minutes instead of overnight, that gives people fresh data to work with in the morning. Instead of uh, you know, the current techniques we're using for things like fraud detection, you'll be able to get incredibly granular, accurate, accurate results instantly, you know, um, and, and this is, this is huge. Uh, it'll have impacts in security on other ways. You'll be able to detect anomalies on your network. Um, you'll be able to create better materials because classical computers choke when they're trying to do things like protein folding or, or simulating different types of carbon, for example. Um, so I just view those, those little pieces alone will change the industry so drastically that everything will just work better. And they're going to use less power too, which is wonderful. Quantum yeah. computers, even though they need refrigerators or whatever, they run so fast. They do such amazing things in a millisecond that, uh, or in a, less than a millisecond, that I think we're going to see those benefits too. Uh, the, the resource hog of data centers is going to go down drastically. Great. Thank, thank you so much for sharing that and for joining me, Constantinos. I really enjoyed hearing your perspective been delightful to chat with you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. So I want to invite people to connect with you uh, on LinkedIn and follow the company on LinkedIn. Going to point listeners to your website, protivity.com. Uh, there's a blog there as well. Uh, I saw that you're active on many social media channels. You have content on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And I have to mention again that you have your own terrific podcast called The Post-Quantum World, focused on business impacts, benefits, and threats of quantum technologies. So thanks again. Great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again, Constantinos, for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on your social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Constantinos. Please listen to my other episodes if you haven't already, and feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.